Welcome to No More Risk Better, a Credit Sites podcast. I'm Winnie Caesar, the Global Head of Strategy. And I'm Zach Griffiths, the Credit Sites Senior Investment Grade Strategist. As strategists, we aim to make sense of the macro and the micro, highlighting opportunities and the risks facing the fixed income markets. As important as the macro call may be, we understand that credit investing at its core comes down to keen single name selection, and we at Credit Sites benefit from the expertise of our team of over 100 analysts across the US, Europe, and Asia. This podcast offers a look at the conversations that we have with our analysts on a regular basis. If you are an investment professional focused on the wide universe of fixed income, you'll want to give this podcast a listen. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Credit Sites podcast. My name's Winnie Caesar. I'm the Global Head of Strategy here at Credit Sites. And today we are going to talk about a very buzzy topic, GLP-1s. So these are those weight loss and diabetes prescription drugs that go under the name of Ozempic or Wegovy. And we're going to talk about these drugs in the context of healthcare today. And so I have a dream team roster of healthcare and insurance and special situations analysts. I have Eric Axon, our senior healthcare analyst and our co-head of High Yield. I have Josh Esterov, our senior analyst covering insurance, and Jory Eisenberg, our senior analyst on our special situations team. We have a lot to cover today. So guys, let's just get right into it. And I'm going to start with you, Eric, on the kind of healthcare pharma angle. Can you give a high-level overview of the drugs that fall in the GLP-1 category? Who produces them? And what are the current on and off-label uses? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dive in here. Thanks for having me on the podcast. So the clear early leaders in the GLP-1 category, and specifically as it pertains to weight loss, are Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly. Novo is really the center of attention right now. They currently have a few drugs on market, as you mentioned, Ozempic and Wagovi. Those are the products getting much of the attention. Maybe just to provide a little bit of background on, on each of those. So Ozempic has actually been on the market since 2017. It currently only holds FDA approval uh, as a treatment for type 2 diabetes, but it's been heavily prescribed for off-label use in weight loss, as I'm sure everyone has pretty much heard at this point. Wagovi is another product. It's a newer product on market. It actually has the same active ingredient as Ozempic, just in a different dosage form. That was approved for weight loss specifically by the FDA in the middle part of 2021. It came to market commercially more recently than that. That approval by the FDA was specifically for people with obesity and at least one weight-related condition. So think about things like high blood pressure, type 2 diabetes, high cholesterol. But off-label use has been quite prevalent there as well. And then the third drug from, from Novo that is less the center of attention, but I think is important to mention is another diabetes medicine. It's called Ribelsus. And so this is an oral therapy, whereas the other two that I just mentioned are injectables. Ribelsus is not yet uh, approved by the FDA for weight loss, but Novo is seeking that approval uh, over the near term. And, and really the key differentiator there being is the, the oral therapy component. Just for a little bit of context, though, those three drugs collectively are expected to generate more than $40 billion in revenues by the end of the decade. Uh, that's more than double at present. And then the other big player, and just briefly, is, is Eli Lilly. And so they're, they're a really promising developer of GLP-1s. Their primary asset is Monjaro. That's a drug that was approved by the FDA for type 2 diabetes in 2022. The company is currently seeking FDA approval for a weight loss specific indication. That's likely to come later this year. 
could launch early next year into the market for weight loss. And revenues for that drug, just for some context, are expected to exceed $20 billion by the later part of the decade. That's versus less than $5 billion currently. So some really, really big market opportunities here from a revenue perspective. On Manjaro is also injectable, right? It is. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And so like, I think your question, you think about like pipeline and like where the market's heading and where the street is looking, it, it's really two, it's twofold. It's oral therapies, which are much preferred as you might suspect from patients than injectables. And it's on improving the side effect profile of these drugs versus for the newer next gen weight loss drugs versus current therapies. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, given that we've all heard that some of the side effects are not particularly pleasant and having to inject yourself with a pharmaceutical is never, I think, at the top of people's list. So what's the pipeline kind of look like? How far away are more oral therapies or less unpleasant side effects? Yeah, so the oral therapies are on the way. And so ribelsis is the, the probably the closest from an approval perspective, but oral therapies from Eli Lilly and Amgen were heavily questioned and talked about on earnings calls just last week. And so Eli Lilly has an oral therapy entering phase three. Orphogleepron is the chemical name. That asset has a lot of promise, probably looking like 2027, 2028, if everything goes well from a clinical trial and from an FDA approval standpoint. Amgen has a, a drug in phase one development that was heavily asked about on their earnings call just to kind of show how much froth there is in the weight loss market. It's, it's not totally common for a, a pharma company to, to have their call centered on a phase one asset. But then AstraZeneca and, and Sanofi are also have notable clinical programs. I think all in, there's something like a dozen clinical, uh, a dozen drug makers pursuing uh, clinical trials for GLP ones. Wow. So if people are very focused on these clinical trials for GLP ones, are there other uses beyond diabetes treatments, weight loss that are currently being studied? Yeah, de definitely. They're being thrown out a whole host of disease categories at this point. Novo made big news earlier last month in kidney outcomes trial. And so in that trial specifically, they were studying Ozempic as a way to prevent the progression of kidney impairment, specifically with people that have uh, type 2 diabetes or, or chronic kidney disease. And so kidney is a big area. Eli Lilly is studying these drugs in a fatty liver disease known as NASH. And then just more broadly as a category, GLP-1s are being studied in heart disease. And so, yeah, they're testing them out in, in a number of different areas right now. Seems like a lot of potential for a lot of pretty serious conditions. But for this podcast, I think let's kind of focus on the weight loss angle because that has been very much part of kind of the broader equity market story and what we've seen in the news so I'd really like to better understand more of the clinical and, you know, maybe also the real world outcomes of GLP-1s used for weight loss. So Eric, can you talk us through how these drugs have performed in clinical trials, kind of what we're seeing so far? Yeah, happy to. So upfront, I would say the, the clinical data for the clinical trial data for weight loss specifically has been quite impressive. Eli Lilly's Manjaro which again could launch early next year, um, has probably put out the most impressive results to date, at least in late stage studies. Uh, and so their drug has shown a 26% reduction in body, in body weight over an 88 week trial. That study also showed improvements in things like blood pressure, cholesterol, other cardiac measures. And so really, really positive, strong results there. I and mean, that's a big reason why the revenue growth trajectory is what it is based on street consensus. However, I think a really interesting part of the study revealed the need to remain on the therapy in order to keep the weight off. 
And so in that same study, a portion of participants were removed from the therapy at, at roughly the midpoint, and those people regained the majority of their body weight. And so the, 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 the need to uh, adhere to the therapy, and these, these drugs are at present being thought of as lifelong therapies. It was an important and interesting kind of development from that trial. In, in other clinical trials, we've seen assets like Wagovi that have showed body weight reductions of 10 to 20%. And there's certainly some indication that earlier stage assets could do even better. But again, there's the need to sustain adherence to the therapy. And then there's also the side effect profile, which you know I'm happy to kind of detail what that looks like if it's uh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I would be curious. You know, we have the clinical trial information, and I think we all know that the real world is not clinical trials. So do we have kind of a view on in the real world, how long are people usually staying on GLP-1s for weight loss? Do we have just like this host of kind of permanent users who have now been on it for a couple of years, especially in the context of some of those side effects, which I would be interested to hear more about? Yeah. So maybe just starting with the side effects, because I think that does play uh, a huge part in the adherence thought process. But yeah, there's been a lot of publicizing of, of pretty aggressive side effects, at least for certain patients. It seems like the most common effects are mild to moderate kind of quote unquote gastrointestinal effects. And so think about kind of the, the common ailments there being nausea, vomiting, bloating, diarrhea. You know, in some studies, we've seen up to 50% of patients have some fall somewhere on the spectrum of having those symptoms. And so you know, those can be quite unpleasant, obviously. More recently, there have been studies confirming much more serious, albeit more rare side effects. So things like pancreatitis, bowel obstruction, paralysis of the stomach muscles has been one. And then kind of the next area that they're looking at, the European regulators are looking at suicidal ideation. There are reports and studies being done about uh, the loss of lean muscle mass, which would obviously present viability question marks for older folks using these medicines. And so there certainly is a side effect profile that drug makers are, are intent upon addressing over the, the coming years and through their R&D efforts. I think for right now, it's fair to question longer-term adherence with side effect profiles that sound like that. And I think things like out-of-pocket costs or insurance coverage are, are also big factors there. Uh, I know we got, we got Josh on the call on that topic, but just for some perspective. So as a general rule, adherence rates for medications for chronic conditions are about 50% after year one. And so roughly 50% of people drop off a therapy after the first year for chronic conditions. We've seen some reports for GLP-1s that, that that adherence rate is even lower. So like a, roughly a third of patients remain on the therapy for more than one year. Some of that is, is a bit clouded up right now by the fact that there has been some manufacturing capacity and supply chain issues uh, just given the demand here. And so there's an argument out there that the adherence studies are, are not totally clean as of yet. And I think that that's totally fair. And then I also think that there's a valid argument, and I think it's yet to be proven, but when you lapse off these therapies, if you start to gain weight, there's a pretty clear and quick motivation to pick the therapy back up. But again, is that enough to offset whatever reason it may be that, that caused you to lapse in the first place? I think is, it's just an interesting point. It's to be determined. Sounds a little bit like yo dieting in general on, yeah. on and off. So Eric, you mentioned kind of the payment side of things, and I do want to loop in Josh on this part of this conversation, because it seems from what I've read that a lot of these drugs, especially when we're being prescribed for the weight loss, are very expensive. So can you guys kind of walk us through the different payers, out-of-pocket versus private insurance, et cetera. And how are we thinking about coverage of GLP-1s for weight loss right now? Hey, Winnie, this is Josh Esterup here. Appreciate the invite back to the show. Why don't I start with the health insurers, that payers angle, and 
I think right now the big question is really about what percentage of plans are going to be allowing for GLP-1 coverage, especially as it pertains to obesity type conditions and weight loss. And I think the answer to the question is we are going to see insurance coverage pick up for GLP-1s, but that's really because we're starting from such a low point. The longer and more complicated answer to that question is uh, I don't think we're going to see a straight line up in terms of coverage percentage. And in fact, some of the recent survey data suggests it might have actually ticked down over the course of the year to like the 20% area. But on the plus side, there's just a lot more top headline generating news about this uh, supposed, you know, quasi-miracle drug here. And we could actually get up to the 40% coverage area through employer plans starting next year. But I think ultimately, a big part of the overall question is really going to come down to the individual employer level. So it's important to note that about half of the country currently gets their health insurance coverage through their employer. And the thing to note about that is it's actually your employer in most cases, especially if it's a sizable leading employer, it's them footing the bill for the cost of healthcare for their employees. So even though you might have an ID card on it that says Cigna or United Health or insurance company X, Y, or Z on it, in most cases, that's just the insurer functionally serving as an administrator for the plan. The employer themselves, they're going to need to determine what level of cost they want to incur and what additional expense for providing coverage for GLP-1s, especially for weight loss purposes and what percentage of that cost they want to share with their employees. And I think at the moment, especially in light of some maybe some macro, looming macro headwinds, a lot of potential plan sponsors, they're, they're sort of struggling with the list price of the drugs right now. You know, we've been hearing directly from the insurer management teams that there's been a lot of conversations about GLP-1s, including for weight loss, but at the same time, just an equal amount of balking over the list price by the plan sponsors, especially when they're also having to worry about paying potentially for some of these side effects that you and Eric were talking about not long ago. So I think still we're going to be on an upward trajectory in terms of overall indication for coverage for GLP-1s. And maybe if the labor market stays tight, maybe that's another sweetener as part of the employee benefits package. But that's something to keep in mind. So that's the 50% chunk of the employee. That's the employer market. But then there's the Medicaid, which let's say that's about 20% of the population. Individual states there can determine whether or not they want GLP-1s included as a covered service. But, you know, that's going to raise the cost both to the individual state and the federal government and therefore taxpayers. And so that's a political appetite question for expanding Medicaid budgets. And that may not exist in, in every state, especially if you consider certain red states. Then even if it is covered, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be completely free out of pocket, even if you're on Medicaid. And, and that's a segment of the population maybe least able to incur in a incremental cost. And I think Medicare, that's 15% of the population that serves the older age individuals. I mean, that's just going to go straight insolvent if we start providing GLP-1 coverage immediately today. So there, that's a non-starter. That's something politically that's going to have to be discussed and, and from a cost perspective. So anyway, just to, to circle back to where I kind of started here, coverage is at a low point. It's going to go up. The pace of it it may be a little bit uncertain and we may get some spikiness and volatility in overall coverage as individual state X, Y, or Z or employer A, B, or C chooses to or not to cover GLP-1s. So actually, I'm not sure who this question would be for, but you were mentioning kind of the list price and, and pushing back from the employer-sponsored plans. What is the list price on these drugs? What's the number here? Yeah, I can jump in. There's definitely some variability, but from a gross pricing perspective, I'd say on average, they're about $1,000 a month. And so there are certain drugs that range higher, certain that range lower. Obviously, we have Eli Lilly's drug is going to be entering the market in the very near term as an injectable weight loss drug. And so that's going to be head-to-head competition for Wagovi and for Ozempic. And so there's a lot of market focus around how the, the Lilly might price that drug. But, but yeah, you're, you're looking at it on a gross price perspective, roughly $1,000 uh, out of pocket a month. There's netting and discounting that that occurs in, in pharma land and all those 
contracts are private, so we don't know net net costs specifically, but certainly if, if an insurer is covering that drug, the net cost to them is, is something far less than $1,000 a month, but still a material number. Awesome. Thanks, Eric. And then Josh, I'd be curious, you know, what are insurance companies generally saying about these drugs in terms of kind of supporting financials going forward by perhaps reducing some of the negative health outcomes that are associated with obesity? As you know, as Eric mentioned, there are a lot of other angles here in terms of helping to reduce cholesterol, um, blood pressure, et cetera. It, or, or is everyone more focused on the potential negative side effects? No, I think the potential benefits still theoretically do outweigh the downside. And, and it's kind of interesting. You might think that insurers are really on the front lines in terms of potential absorbing the costs for GLP-1, but that's not really the case. You know, outside of the very near term, they'll adjust pricing to reflect the new reality of, let's say, substantially higher utilization of higher drug costs. And they're going to pass that along to employer plan sponsors or the employees themselves or their insured population one way or the other. So it's going to be reflected in higher premium rates. So in some sense, it's actually the non-users of GLP-1s sort of subsidizing the users of GLP-1s. But over the long term, to the extent that you do see a genuinely healthier population, that is likely to have a positive impact that the sort of probably reverberates across sectors, not just the health insurance sector, but for the health insurer specifically, that's going to be reflected in lower claims payments. And, and if it remains a competitive space, maybe over time, even lower premium rates for all of us. I don't think we're nearly at that point yet, but that's sort of where their heads are at long term. And then also to the extent that a given insurer has an internal PBM operation, which is the case for a lot of these leading national insurers nowadays, think of your United Health or, or Cigna, you know, there could be some incremental revenue opportunities from a PBM, drug price, medical adherence and injectables kind of perspective. So health insurers are, you know, they're going to be happy to provide coverage for the drug, but they're definitely not going to be the ones willing to pay for it outright and, and certainly not indefinitely, especially what Eric said earlier about there is not much evidence to suggest that weight loss won't be permanent if adherence is weak. So I think what the health insurers really want is a better mechanism to ensure this clinical medical adherence. And in a perfect world with perfect clinical adherence, that obviously creates a, a positive framework and, and feedback cycle probably where the drug won't be used indefinitely. The employer, employee, and health insurer won't be dealing with like any kind of spiraling runaway costs of an indefinite timeline. And that gives a high probability for a positive long-term health outcome, which I think everybody kind of welcomes at this point. We'll obviously never get to perfect, but moving in that direction is aligned with the interests of the health insurers. So right at this second, I think everyone's sort of experimenting with how well this works, how we can improve the rate of it working and, and what the long-term sustainable benefits are. And I think maybe we're just in a proof of concept stage a little bit right now. Yeah, absolutely. I think that everyone is just really trying to get their bearings with this. Eric, it blows my mind that there's only 50% adherence to medications that are meant to be taken for forever. That's a wild stat. Yeah, totally. And it, this was actually raised on uh, Ernie's call last week. I think it was for Eli Lilly. And the point raised there was that oftentimes if you're taking a medication for a chronic condition, when you lapse off of it, nothing really happens. You just kind of go about your life. Here, the counterpoint from, albeit a, a biased view of being, you know, if you know, on the part of Eli Lilly was that you know, there's a weight regain aspect to it that, that would conceivably motivate someone to, to pick the therapy back up. Man, for all the big pharma conspiracy theorists, weight loss drugs are, you know, really kind of primo of the, you have to take it forever and there's an immediate side effect if you don't. That's interesting. All right, so let's bring Jory into the conversation because Jory, you've been focused on GLP-1s within the broader context of Weight Watchers, which is one of the companies that you cover in special situations 
And they're obviously a weight loss company that has recently acquired a telehealth business called Sequence earlier in April of, of 2023. Can you walk us through the rationale of that acquisition for Weight Watchers and maybe just kind of give us some context or an update on the weight loss industry in general? Because I think there's going to be a lot of intersection between healthcare and the weight loss industry going forward. Yeah, of course. Winnie, thanks for having me. So I picked up coverage on Weight Watchers late in 2022 as part of our special situations coverage at Credit Sites. The announcement to get into the GLP space came as a bit of a surprise to the market. I think it was in March of 2023 that kind of out of the blue, the company announced a very significant departure from its prior multi-decade history focused on holistic efforts to control weight loss through community reinforcement, both in person and more recently in a digital environment, as well as just active monitoring and management of basically what you eat on a daily basis and the activity that you track. So incorporating a medical or pharmacological approach to treatment is a very significant departure for the company and one they've been struggling to, to a degree to supply the correct messaging to the market over the last few months. But as, as far as the rationale for why they did it, it's kind of like they had the back against the wall a little bit. Just the market was changing very significantly and very rapidly. I would say the, the, the two closest or the closest competitor to Weight Watchers as of several quarters ago was, was a company called Jenny Craig which is not an exact replica. It was similar in the sense that it offered a similar kind of community environment, both in person and in a digital presence. But it was different in the sense that it, it had a much more expensive price point because it was also a food replacement product offering, similar to another quasi-competitor, uh, Nutrisystem. As far as a more just digital focus weight tracking program that actually is a paid service, the, the only one out there really is a company called Noom, which is a price point generally above Weight Watchers, had no in-person presence, has no you know, food replacement offering to it. And that, and that is a private company. Weight Watchers announced that right around the same time frame that they announced their sequence acquisition, that the Noom had done something very similar. They also had launched a acquisition of a, a telehealth platform to grant their customers access to these growing GLP medications. And as far as Jenny Craig, their prior competitor, they continue to lose money quarter after quarter. Eventually, ending in a liquidation bankruptcy transaction where it was acquired by the, the private equity parent company that owns Nutrisystem. That company still exists, or I should say the brand exists, but both Nutrisystem and Jenny Craig are now fully focused on providing food product or replacements solely. There is no more community environment. All their physical workshop presence have been shut down entirely. And so basically that competitive threat is gone. If Weight Watchers wanted to follow that same path, it very well may not be here anymore itself or, or been tracking to that. I guess it saw that embracing the GLP medication was its kind of only pathway forward, which was not really a guarantee for its success, but it was kind of a swing for the fences, Hail Mary, if you will, and potentially hitching a ride to a very powerful trend that could be you know, quite beneficial to it over the long run. But it, it is going to take some time for that theory or thesis to play out in full. Yeah, absolutely. I remember Weight Watchers being a kind of topic on the distress desk back when I was with Wells. So this was, you know, a number of years ago. So it's always been kind of facing some challenges. And with Noom also taking market share, I'm assuming, and kind of entering in this telehealth business as well, it seems like that's the broader move. It also seems like this kind of science of weight loss and obesity is changing in a lot of ways. That is 
I think recognizing for some people that there are pharmacological interventions that are going to be more effective than kind of the traditional move more, eat less recommendation, which is, I think, what a lot of people think about Weight Watchers. So Weight Watchers did just report earnings. I think it was last week. Jory, you know, where do they kind of stand on sequence in terms of helping users get access to GLP-1s? Has it changed your view on the credit at all? (laughs) What what should we expect here? I mean, I I always expected that the sequence integration into the Weight Watchers business was going to take some time to fully play out. I would say, if anything, that's actually kind of been a slower process than I I expected when I I first wrote my initial thoughts on this back in March. As I think Josh and Eric have talked to a little bit, I mean, there, there have been some supply chain challenges, just given the limited number of drugs, especially for weight loss only that are on the market. And frankly, I mean, for the drugs that are only approved for diabetics officially, I mean, some of these are being prescribed off-label for broader use just across weight loss. So there's a bit of a chokehold, I think, in terms of getting access to the medications. And knowing that, I think Weight Watchers has held back significantly on their marketing spend and try to push to sign up customers. They just don't want to get ahead of themselves and being, being, have a bunch of angry customers that they can't properly service. With that said, that they are definitely growing out their customer base. I think they, when they announced they acquired sequence. I think they're kind of starting subscribers with somewhere in like the low to mid 20,000 range. As of Q3, they announced that's up to 45,000 at this point. And I think they're still guiding towards ramping that to 100,000 just by the end of 2023. Although no guidance has been provided for four thereafter at this point. I think the expectation is it could ramp to substantially larger levels. I think Weight Watchers has, just for reference, just under 4 million subscribers in total across their you know digital and in-person you know workshop offerings right now. And I think they've commented that the target, I guess, characteristics for a potential sequencer, or sorry, GLP candidate, just based on BMI characteristics or other weight-related ailments, something like you know a quarter or more of their, that 4 million population would fall in that category. So it's not completely clear exactly, you know, which portion translates over. And I mean, there's also a price point element of who's willing to kind of absorb that cost, both just paying for sequence itself, as well as any co-pays or in the eventuality that insurance coverage is not obtained to be able to, you know, stomach having to pick up the full cost of the drug. But the market opportunity could be quite large from their perspective. It's just going to take some time to get there. So initially the data isn't, you know, super robust. I mean, they only have, I think they acquired it in April and just have had, you know, a quarter or two of reporting data since then, a pretty small sample size of 45,000 or so. The company did talk a little bit on their last earnings call, though, about just kind of general approval rates and getting access to get insurance company authorizations for the GLPs. And I think industry-wide, they were suggesting that somewhere around like the 20-25% level and that they're incrementally at this point able to kind of get about a 10 percentage point improvement above that, kind of like 30-35% range. I mean, Mind you, that there's not a lot of detail in terms of how they characterize their sample size and how that translates to the population. Are they talking about commercial insurance, Medicare, Medicaid? You know, what, what type of circumstances or characteristics of their patient profile that they're submitting for pre-authorization? So you, you got to take it a bit with a grain of salt. But I, I will just give one other data point by comparison that the drug distributor McKesson also just reported earnings about a week ago, and they talked a little bit about their own program that they have in place with the pharmacies themselves, where they they work kind of hand in hand with you know providers to try to uh, you know resolve any insurance company pre-approval issues on the medications. 
And they were actually kind of talking about higher approval rates kind of into the 40 plus percent range. So it's something we want to dig in a little bit deeper on our side, just to understand a little bit more. Presumably that's like an, something that customers aren't paying for out of pocket themselves. So it calls into question like, you know, a hundred dollar a month subscription price for an offering like sequence that, you know, there potentially are better or at least equivalent options available potentially at lower cost. Yeah, that's actually great because I was going to follow up there. You know, if I am a Weight Watcher subscriber and I'm one of the people who fall in the category of having something that would allow me access to Wagovi, why would I pay Weight Watchers $100 a month rather than just going to my doctor and saying, hey, like, can I get a prescription to this? Like, it's a little bit of a head scratcher to me. Totally. I think, I think it's been one of the biggest questions that we're trying to see proof of concept on. And I think you just need time and data to make that determination. I mean, the, the argument Weight Watchers would make is that they're more effective at helping you get that insurance approval with that preliminary kind of 10% spread above kind of market average. I mean, it doesn't seem you know super compelling to me just at first glance. I mean, presumably people are signing up for this $100 subscription. It's, it's not insignificant for somebody who's used to paying, you know, $20 or less a month for, for Weight Watchers, you know, main products. So I think they're probably going in with the expectation that they, they sign up for this and they're going to use their expert technological aspects or, or skills or network they've created to get you access to the drug. But 30% chance means 60, 70% chance you're not going to be successful. So if that's the case, I mean, are you getting a refund for that product or where does that leave you exactly, I guess, is the question. It seems like still a lot of questions that, that need to be answered. And Josh, I would be curious, we've seen a pretty significant rise in telehealth for a number of different things over the past, call it a few years, really. I think the pandemic kind of put that trend on overdrive. How do you think that insurers will react to the kind of the telehealth angle of helping to facilitate access to GLP-1s. Is this a, something that's helpful to insurers? Are they receptive to this? Can you walk us through the dynamic there? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're first of all, you're absolutely right. I mean, health insurers have just been investing big time into telehealth offerings, and that's not even related to GLP-1s. They just kind of very much like the economics of the arrangement for a number of different reasons. I think for health insurers and, and plan sponsors, though, it, it's not so much about the mechanism for prescribing GLP-1s as much as it's going to be about, like I was mentioning earlier, this insuring medical adherence, insuring people that take these drugs or, are doing all the other things right, like eating right, taking care of their mental health, all, all the other factors that may have prevented them from succeeding with more traditional weight loss strategies. The, the more uh, aligned that can be, the better, because really what, it, what insurers and plan sponsors don't want is where telehealth is, is simply a prescription mechanism, but that provides no ancillary support. So insurers would not welcome that aspect of it. But, but generally speaking, to the extent that it can support all those other kind of factors that Eric had mentioned earlier, uh, they would welcome higher adoption of telehealth and just that, the usage of that technology in general. That's interesting. So presumably, if we can get Weight Watchers actually getting weight loss drugs prescribed and then getting users to change their behavior, then that would be kind of a home run for both Weight Watchers and the insurance industry and probably healthcare as a whole. But that feels like a big if to me at this point. It also makes me wonder if the lawyers won't get paid as much in the future. So I don't know if they're going to love that. You know, I am a lawyer, so don't knock me too, too hard. Hey, Jory, can I also just ask, is, does Sequence have like a weight loss consulting angle or is it just like a, a pre-authorization through insur insurance uh, type service? Yes, th there's supposed to be a, a wellness component to it as well. There definitely was prior to the acquisition by Weight Watchers. I mean, they're still trying to figure out, you know, the full integration 
between the two, like where there's levels of duplication versus not. I think the business model itself, I mean, changed from from an, the initial outset. But as it stands right now, I think they're creating a kind of a separate module entirely. So if you're a sequence subscriber, they're kind of creating a customized complementary Weight Watcher subscription that gets layered on top of your subscription costs to sequence. So you're not going to be getting kind of double revenue for Weight Watchers. I mean, you pay the one cost for sequence, and then you got a specialized program with tailored around the nutritional needs specific for people on GLPs. Like Eric, you mentioned earlier, the potential risk to loss of lean muscle mass. So I think they're trying to create a program that encourages eating in a way that kind of preserves that to the maximum degree. But Weight Watchers always had as part of their program coaching, both in person and in a digital sense. So I think that would definitely be part of it. I have to study a little bit further within the clinical side of things outside of access to actual medical doctors, what personnel are available to provide services within the sequence platform itself. So I think they're, it's changing a little bit as you go, but I think that's definitely been part of it, not just a pill mill, so to speak, but a bit broader in terms of providing for the overall weight loss solution just happens to have GLPs as the centerpiece to it as the storyline. I would just say one other thing, Winnie, though, that I don't think I spoke about much earlier. I think the big thesis behind the Weight Watchers is trying to put forward of why they think this should be successful is the marrying together of that behavioral lifestyle management that they have offered for decades with the GLP side of things. And I think they're trying to play into questions and concerns they've seen from, from the FDA or from insurance companies that there's some concerns about just kind of blindly giving prescription access to these medications in a vacuum. And they think that providing the underpinning of ongoing weight management, thinking about what you're eating on a daily basis, making sure you're getting the right nutrition, you're managing your activity levels, combined with what has been shown to be a very effective weight loss medication tool, provides for the best long-term option for, for customers. So I think that's what people are waiting to see further data on, but it is theoretically the holy grail that could put them in a kind of category killer potential over the long run, but I think it's far from proven at this point. So let's kind of wind down with that in terms of tradeability, Jory, with Weight Watchers pursuing the theoretical holy grail. Should we all be super long Weight Watchers or is it just too early to tell? I, th I think it is too early to tell. Not too long ago, I I've actually kind of gone the opposite direction from the credit perspective, where, where my focus there has been more about kind of valuation levels. And, and credit metrics facing the company itself. So I, I think that if you're several quarters away from the company kind of being able to kind of declare success or failure on the sequence side of things, I think you need to look at what's been happening in their core business itself, which unfortunately has been facing kind of declining revenue trends, uh, sorry, subscriber and revenue trends that they've been trying to counteract by heavier discounting to sign people up for longer. But I mean, Q3 just kind of got left a little bit with like uh, management telling the analyst community, investor community, just kind of just trust us that. We sign people up at low price points for very long periods of time, and they're going to renew and they're going to want to stay with us. But I think there's a lot of risk to that. And just to give some credit metric perspective, I mean, this is a company that's now almost 10 times levered net. Their liquidity is getting kind of pretty tight. Their free cash flow is, is negative. They don't have any debt due for quite a while. But the concern from our perspective, from a credit perspective, is about near-term liquidity. So if they can't get their core business headed in the right direction soon, they may run into a liquidity crisis before they can even determine if sequence is successful or not. So I think from the credit perspective, I think my answer is I, I would not be a buyer and I'm, I'm actually a seller as things stand now. I don't generally comment officially on, on the equity storyline, but I, I guess we've been talking about, I guess, the equity 
upside that that could exist if all these things do hit correctly. So I think Weight Watchers could be a way to kind of express a view on the success of GLPs, just in the sense that I, I would just highlight that it's not a direct play, which would be more through you know the pharma companies. I mean, this is really a second derivative play that could be very much divorced from the success of GLPs. I mean, your your access point here is telehealth, which is just one mechanism or what one approach to get access to the medication. And I mean, you could have GLPs very successful and just people go and get their prescriptions from your local doctor, like you suggested, Winnie, bypass sequence entirely. So on the one hand, they need to prove success at their ability to kind of get differential access to the insurance approval. At the extreme, if the insurance industry just generally broadly accepts and gives access to this, then you completely don't need sequence at all. And you would, the business kind of effectively becomes a nothing. So it's a complicated one, but I suppose there is an equity angle or an equity story that you could get behind. I just hesitant to give it an official recommendation myself, just given the, the puts and takes. That is fair. So Weight Watchers needs to get to the new year, new you, and hopefully avoid that liquidity crunch before they can get sequins up and running. So Eric, if Weight Watchers is kind of a, a derivative play on the GLP-1 craze, pharma has clearly been kind of front and center. I think that a lot of the pharma equity valuations in particular are baking in some optimism. Is this concept still tradable on the pharma side of things, especially for credit stories? Does it matter? For credit stories, I would say less so now, but but even from just a pure valuation perspective, the, the cat is well out of the bag on a lot of these pharma names. And so that's why I think you saw such a, a huge focus on last week's earnings calls on you know, earlier stage assets and you know, the development of oral therapies. The market is effectively already looking at like, what are the next generation therapies out there? Just for some context, Eli Lilly, we, we've had an outperform recommendation on the credit there since early this year. A lot of that has to do with their industry-leading growth trajectory, which comes on the heels of Manjaro specifically. But from a from a valuation perspective, this name traded like 35 times 2024 adjusted EBITDA, so extremely rich valuation. I think though that you know, in terms of thinking about how to make these really rich valuations work, it's a matter of looking back deeper into the the earlier stage pipeline. But then I w- what I would also say is, you know, as you think about the second derivative plays, there's been a lot of betting against names that could be impacted by GLP-1s longer term. And I actually see a lot of that activity as a bit overdone at this point. You know, there I'm speaking to things like medical device names, so specifically companies with exposure to, to diabetes. So think glucose monitoring devices, insulin pumps, or, or orthopedic players, so hip and knee replacements. They've been hit pretty hard as well. The dialysis operators got wrecked on news of Ozempic's kidney care trial earlier last month. And so I think some of that is, is, is some of those sell-offs are particularly overdone at this point, particularly as you think about, you know, adherence and, and cost issues that we spoke about today. You know, I think that if, if these drugs can eventually reduce the incidence of, of things like heart disease, diabetes, kidney disease, joint replacements, it's going to take a very long time for, for it to play out. It's going to happen very gradually is the view that I, that I hold. So gradually for kind of the second derivatives of the healthcare industry. Josh, let's go to you. In insurance, is the weight loss GLP-1 craze tradable? Yeah, I think we're going in the wrong direction here from a tradability perspective. I suspect that GLP-1s are going to continue to dominate the media and headlines and any kind of interplay they have with health insurers, but I'm not even sure it actually included as a top five issue for what's going to move the credit needle for the health insurers. Just kind of rattling off the top of my head here, maybe I'd point to like 
political developments, regulatory developments, litigation issues unassociated with GLP-1s, the macro employment environment. I'd probably rank all of that ahead of GLP-1s in terms of what could really move spreads. And as a reminder, we're about to head into an election year, and that's always the number one component for the health insurance sector in terms of what folks, investors are thinking about and what's moving spreads. So, you know, maybe long term, there could be some modest upside for insurers with you know, large PBM operations, like I was mentioning earlier, maybe that's Cigna, maybe that's CVS or United Health, and But ultimately, I think that's going to be marginal. It's probably not going to move the credit needle. So I'm glad Jory and Eric had more to say. Yes. And thank you so much for reminding me that we're heading into an election year. Clearly something that I'm super excited about on strategy. Not at all. Don't want don't enjoy your, it. Enjoy your 24-hour days going forward. Oh, I just, I, the news flow is so painful in election seasons. But this was not painful at all. Thank you guys for joining me to talk about GLP-1s and healthcare and weight loss and Weight Watchers and all of these things. We will actually be back next week to talk about GLP-1s a bit more on the consumer side of things, as everyone is worried that these weight loss drugs means that it is the end of snacking and packaged foods, which I don't know is necessarily the case. So we'll have our consumer team to talk about that angle. So Josh, Jory, Eric, thanks so much for joining me today. I hope everyone enjoyed the podcast. If you have any questions for any of us on the podcast, please feel free to reach out directly using that Ask an Analyst button on the Credit Sites website. And thank you all for listening. Thanks, guys. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Credit Sites Disclaimer. All price references correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, or reproduced in whole or in part. Neither Credit Sites nor its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of any information contained in this podcast. Credit Sites is not providing investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, is not providing research or making any recommendations, nor is Credit Sites offering or soliciting any transaction with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. The receipt by this listener of this podcast is not the giving of advice by Credit Sites or its affiliates.